For the first time, feel really welcomed. And uh, that's really important, maybe even more than we realize. I was reading an article at churchleaders.com entitled Five Must-Know Facts About First-Time Visitors by Rick Ezel. And he says that visitors make up their mind about a church in the first 10 minutes of their visit. That's the first fact listed in the article. The second one says uh, most church members are not friendly. <laughs> that's not good news. And if you've ever been to a church where you were not greeted by anyone, uh, maybe no one said hello, no one introduced themselves to you. You know how awkward that can feel. Just being there is sort of like your presence is being tolerated, but no one is particularly happy to see you or to meet you. And I've been uh, in a lot of churches over the past 20 years of ministry and seen some, some really weird stuff. But nothing is more awkward than being ignored. Uh, like when the greeters are talking to each other when you walk in about the game uh, from the previous night and you know you walk in and you have to interrupt them uh, to find out where to take your kids what classroom or there's a fellowship time during the service or after the service and maybe no one talks to you of course none of that's the end of the world but w what does it communicate to people who are visiting right it definitely does not communicate the idea that we are really really glad that you're here I think somewhere along the way, maybe some elements of the church have forgotten that this is supposed to be a growing family. And if we're truly convicted about that, the fact that we should always be growing, making new disciples, bringing them into the family. It's what we see in every instance in the Bible where the church is healthy and thriving. It's growing, okay? Then there would be uh, never intentionally, we would never intentionally miss an opportunity to connect with the people in our church, especially those who are here for the first time, if that's a conviction of ours. Fellowship within the body of Christ has always been a key element in the formation and the strength and the growth of the church from Acts 2 on. And one of the most obvious ways that we communicate to people that we actually care about them is to exude the fruit of the Spirit, which we talked about last week. In Galatians 5, and 23, the Apostle Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And of course, nothing says to people at our church, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nothing communicates that to people quite like being completely ignored when you walk in the front doors, right? Of course not. It is important that we not only care about people, but that we show them that we care about them. And you are actually really good at that. You're really good at that. So keep up the good work. And as we say here often, if you've been here at least twice to Upcountry Church and you're thinking that you may continue coming, then congratulations. You've officially been commissioned by the pastor as an Upcountry Church greeter. It's your job. Be friendly, especially to those that you don't already have an established relationship with. Get to know new people every week. Make it your mission to have a conversation with someone new each Sunday if you can. Because it says to people, we care about you and we're glad that you're here and we're interested in you. Okay, And of course, once our new book is released, we're expecting new people uh, who have read it to come in to this church over the following months. I have several friends, a lot of friends actually, uh, who are pastors who have done this same program. Uh, I've had a lot of response from it. People come in hoping to find a place that they fit in and a family of believers that they can be a part of. And we certainly don't want to fail in that because that is one aspect of our calling by Jesus Christ to make disciples. Letting people know that we genuinely care about them and are interested in them. That goes a long way toward their openness to listen to the message of the gospel.
Okay, And so, woven throughout several of these messages in the sermon series, uh, the Acts of the Apostles we've been working on as we work our way through the book of Acts, we've talked about the call of God on our lives and how there are specific jobs that He has for each of us to do, specific callings. And for those who would go, He's always giving us a mission. And that can be different for everyone, how we carry out that mission, how we spread the gospel, exactly what that ministry looks like. That can be different for everyone. But what is universal for all believers is the purpose of that call, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that He has commanded you. All of these commanded us, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That's a universal calling for all followers of Jesus Christ. And so, with that in mind, as we continue in our sermon series today, with a message entitled, God is Calling... Uh, We're going to talk about that mission for every believer and what God is looking for in people who would rise to the challenge and answer that call. What What does He expect from us? How should we respond when God is calling? Okay, so let's turn to the book of Acts if you have your Bibles. And I think we'll have the the passages up on the screen. Uh, We do everything in the ESV because that's the version that Jesus uses. I'm just kidding. You can use whatever version you want. Um, We're going to work through the first 25 verses of chapter 16, and we're going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago. Last week, we paused this series for our two-year anniversary uh, special service. And just to set the stage here, uh, Paul and Barnabas have uh, recently separated after their epic conflict over John Mark. And if you were here, you'll remember that Paul rejected the idea of taking John Mark with them on their next missionary journey because he bailed out on the last one, leaving Paul and Barnabas to continue on their own. And that didn't sit well with Paul. But John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. He was Mary's son. He was a friend of Peter. John Mark was very much a part of this tight-knit group of believers in Jerusalem. He was family. And Barnabas wanted to take him along on their next trip. And of course, the disagreement became an unresolved conflict that ultimately led to the separation of Paul and Barnabas. So Barnabas takes John Mark and he heads to Cyprus, uh, where Barnabas was from, and they go on to have tremendous success on the island, planting churches and making disciples, while Paul takes Silas and travels to Syria and Cilicia, continuing his work in the churches there. And so as we pick up the story this morning, Paul and Silas are now working their way in reverse order of Paul's first missionary journey back through the churches in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And they're strengthening the local congregations in the faith as they go. And they're also informing those churches of the decisions that were made at the Jerusalem Council, which we studied back in chapter 15, the decisions about how the church was to treat Gentiles who were coming to the faith. Okay, so let's jump back into the story now at verse 1. Chapter 16, it says, Paul came also to Derbe, or Derby as we say it, and to Lustra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, so Paul and Silas get to Derbe and Lustra. And Paul takes a particular interest in a young man named Timothy. And as we look a bit closer uh, 
at this new character in our story and Paul's disposition toward him, I believe that we can glean a deeper understanding of the nature of God concerning those whom he calls through this relationship between Paul and Timothy. And remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago, some scripture is prescriptive and some scripture is descriptive. Okay, and there's, there's a, not only a big difference between the two, but it's really important that we understand that when we're reading a passage that is prescriptive and what that means versus a passage that is descriptive. Okay, and so this passage in Acts 16 is descriptive. In other words, it describes an event that happened in history. And yet the fact that a particular passage is descriptive and not prescriptive is not a reason in and of itself, to assign the value of it as historical only, which is the mistake some make these days, okay? Because even in the descriptive passages of the Bible, there are principles about the nature of God and man and our relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can mine out of those verses if we're willing to, to take that journey and put in a little extra effort in our study, okay? So with that in mind, let's see what we can glean from our text today about God's universal calling to all believers. And the first point that we'll draw out concerning that call is that God is more interested in your character than He is in your resume. All right? If we spend a little energy looking into the life of Timothy and take what we already know about John Mark from our studies over the past couple of weeks and then compare Paul's dealings with these two young men, I believe that what we find is a reflection of the heart of God toward us concerning His calling. All right, John Mark is a, a very well-connected individual in the early church. He was in the inner circle of those early believers. He was the son of Mary, whose house uh, was the place where the early church often met. Mary's house was the first place that Peter ran to when the angel led him out of prison. It was Mary's house where the believers gathered to pray for those being persecuted. And John Mark was in the middle of all that as Mary's son. He was also the cousin of the great apostle Barnabas. He was a very close friend, an extremely close friend and associate of Peter. In fact, Peter refers to John Mark as his son in 1 Peter 5.13, which he meant in the spiritual sense. John Mark was around and involved in some of the most significant events in Scripture at the time. He'd been selected to go on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And of course, he ended up writing the book of Mark or the gospel according to Mark same guy. Just a side note, you understand that John Mark was probably not an eyewitness or a disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry, although some debate that. He was not one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus, although he was the Apostle Peter's personal attendant and writer and close friend. And so the gospel according to Mark, or the book of Mark in the Bible, is actually John Mark's written recordings of what Peter told him about his time, Peter's time with Jesus. So you could say it's the gospel according to Peter as written down by John Mark. And we have widespread historical evidence of that as well in the early writings of the church fathers like Papias, he was the bishop of Heropolis in AD 120 and Eusebius of Caesarea in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD as well. Okay, But the point is, John Mark later became a part of the innermost circles of that early church, those leaders and the original apostles of Jesus, even if he wasn't a witness of Jesus himself at the time. John Mark had the background, the education, the experience, and the, the pedigree, all of the impressive makings in men's eyes to be called and chosen for the most difficult, the most challenging, and the most significant ministry opportunities for Christ that were available in that day. 
Timothy, however, was a different story altogether. Timothy was an uncircumcised, half-Greek, half-Jew, recent convert who couldn't be further away from the inner circle of the early church in Jerusalem. In fact, it's commonly held by scholars that Timothy and his mother and his grandmother had all been led to Christ during Paul's first missionary trip through Lustra, which is referenced in Paul's second letter to Timothy. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure dwells in you as well. He's writing to Timothy. So here's a young man who does not have the experience, the education, the background, the associations. Doesn't have the history, doesn't have the pedigree, none of the qualifications uh, that one would expect you'd need to be chosen to become the closest associate to one of the greatest if not the greatest church leader of all time. And yet, when it came time to choose the one that Paul would mentor to disciple and to raise up to take his place, Paul said no to John Mark, and he said yes to Timothy. According to conventional wisdom, and certainly in the eyes of men, his choice makes no sense. But Paul wasn't looking for an impressive resume, you see. He was looking for godly character, and I believe this is a reflection of the very heart of God. Now, to be fair to John Mark, he later became a seasoned minister, a great apostle himself, according to the early church fathers, and certainly uh, we know that Paul later came to love and appreciate and rely on John Mark very much. Okay, so no one is hating on John Mark here at all. But it is pertinent and very relevant to this discussion to compare these two young men at the time Paul was making his choices for traveling companions and ministry partners. And by all rights, John Mark had the resume. He had the qualifications. He had all the history. He had all the connections. John Mark, by most people's standards, would have been the clear choice to accompany Paul on his journeys. And yet Paul chose Timothy. Why? Because he was more interested in godly character than he was with an impressive resume. When times got tough, John Mark, probably out of some immaturity at the time, caved to the pressures of traveling with Paul and Barnabas, and he ran home to his mother in Jerusalem. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, which we've already discussed back in chapter 13. And that choice by John Mark obviously affected Paul deeply. Because when Barnabas suggests that they take John Mark with them on their next missionary journey, which we saw in Acts 15, not only did Paul reject that idea... But he was so adamant about it that it caused a conflict of significant consequence. Ultimately, it caused the separation of Paul and Barnabas. Paul was looking for character that he obviously didn't feel John Mark had fully developed yet. And that that may have been an act of mercy as much as it was an act of judgment. You understand? It could have been for John Mark's benefit and development. That doesn't mean that Paul hated or even disliked John Mark. Again, we see Paul and, and John Mark having a very close relationship toward the end of Paul's life. It wasn't that he didn't like him. It was a matter of choosing someone who had the character that was needed to effectively answer the call in his life at that point in time. And Timothy fit the bill. Even though he could claim none of the accolades of a John Mark, it was something deeper that appears to have been the difference for Paul, who clearly recognizes a quality of character in Timothy. Okay, Again, 2 Timothy 1.5, which we, we just read, Paul refers to Timothy's sincere faith. And then in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, 
who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Okay, and then that that phrase proven worth that Paul uses to describe Timothy in verse 22 is the Greek word dakime, and it literally means approved, tried character. Timothy's character was tested and proven, and Paul recognized that in him. And of course, he chose Timothy to be his ministry partner after rejecting the proposal that he take John Mark with him. Paul was more interested in godly character and in an impressive resume, and I believe the same can be said of God. I'm, I'm very thankful for my education. I'm very blessed to have been able to go through seminary. I'm grateful for the experience of working in ministry vocationally for 20 years. I've had great associations and experiences with others in the ministry, but, but you want to know the truth? God isn't impressed with any of that. When I preach, he isn't up there taking notes. The greatest sermons in the world don't impress God. Right? What does? What does impress God? What makes an impression on Him? What pleases Him? Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. 1 Chronicles 29, 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. 1 Timothy 5, uh, 3-4, Honor widows who are truly widows. We'll read through 5. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And Psalm 147, 11 says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in his steadfast love. And we can go on and on here. The point is that what delights God, what pleases him, what what makes a pleasing impression on him, and what is common among all of these passages are godly character traits in those who follow him. He's not impressed with all of the things that impress mankind. There is no amount of experience, no amount of education, no body of work or human accomplishment that impresses God. What he's looking for is Christ-like character among his people. And yet, one of the primary reasons that people give me for not answering the call of ministry in their own lives, the call to ministry that all believers share, one of the most commonly given reasons for not serving, for not getting involved in what God is doing in the ministry, is that they don't feel qualified or worthy because of their past. Their upbringing, their past life sins they've committed, mistakes they've made, the family they were raised in, and they've spent years accumulating feelings of shame and guilt and low self-worth to the point that they remove themselves from qualifying for any type of ministry. But I have great news for you. Once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and become a follower of His, your past no longer has a voice in your future. 
not spiritually, because the blood of Jesus Christ that poured down off that cross 2,000 years ago at Calvary runs deeper than the deepest of hurts. It washes away every ounce of sin and shame and guilt that we hold on to. Left to the devices of this world, where you come from can have a great bearing on where you end up in life, but Jesus Christ is the X factor. He changes the course of people's lives. He can take you as far as you're willing to go, regardless of your upbringing, or your credentials, or your, your past experiences, or the expectations of others. It's wonderful to have a great upbringing. But that is not what defines you if you belong to Jesus Christ. When you're His, you're redefined by the very author of life itself. And so, regardless of how experienced or inexperienced you are in ministry, regardless of where and by whom you were raised, regardless of your education or lack of, regardless of what you've done or not done in your past, God is not looking for an impressive resume. He's looking for Christ-like character today. He used a stuttering 80-year-old man to lead an entire nation to freedom. He used a young boy with no battlefield experience to defeat Israel's greatest enemy. He used a prostitute to protect Joshua's men and ultimately bring victory to the people of Israel in the fall of Jericho. He used a tax collector and some fishermen to change the world. And he used a murdering Pharisee bent on the destruction of the church to establish that same church and to write most of his New Testament. When you follow Jesus Christ, your past has no voice in your future because God is more interested in your character than He is in your resume. So don't allow your past to dictate your future. Live your life in Christ to the fullest extent. Take every opportunity to fulfill the calling that He has for you now without consideration for what is in the past that may be trying to limit you. The sacrifice of Christ is bigger than all of our sin. His sacrifice wasn't that weak. All of our mistakes, all of our shortcomings, all of our inadequacies are covered by His blood. Strive to attain Christ-like character and let Him build your resume with spiritual accomplishments. Okay? Let's keep reading in our story now. We'll go to verse 6. It says, And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. But when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Smart guys. Notice for the first time in our story through Acts up to this point, uh, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, begins referring to the group as we. Right? This is the first time he uses the first, plural, uh, uh, first person plural we which indicates that he's now joined the group on their trip to Macedonia, uh, which was clearly not on Paul's radar originally. He obviously had other plans, and the Holy Spirit had to repeatedly redirect him and his companions. And then he adds an additional traveler, Luke, on this very important mission to Macedonia, which brings us to our next principle concerning the calling on your life, which is that when you answer that call, the Holy Spirit will often intervene in your plans. 
Paul and his companions were most likely uh, traveling on the Via Sebastia, a well-known Roman uh, military road at the time, heading toward Asia, probably to Ephesus, when the Holy Spirit forbids them to continue in that direction. So they turn north, and they head to Mysia, and then attempt to enter into Bithynia. And once again, the Holy Spirit redirects them. He sends them on a 400-mile journey on foot to Troas. That was not in the game plan. It was not in the GPS. It was not where they were planning on going. And it wasn't as if God didn't want the gospel to go to Asia or Bithynia, because in 1 Peter 1.1, we see Peter writing to believers in those same areas. So the gospel certainly made it there. And yet, as Paul and his companions were going from city to city and spreading the gospel, the Holy Spirit forbids them to enter these very specific places and instead directs them to Macedonia, which, by the way, was an entirely different part of the world. This was Europe instead of the East. I was talking with some friends about this Wednesday night. We were trying to answer the question, how specific is God's calling? How particular is He about guiding and directing our lives? <coughs> Excuse me. Those are great questions for us to ask and explore together. But obviously Paul was answering the call on his life. Obviously his intentions were pure. He was spreading the gospel and making disciples from town to town to town. And yet the Holy Spirit didn't say, well, as long as you're doing my work, just go for it. Whatever you want to do. No, the Spirit of God was very specific in guiding us uh, where He wants us to go and who He wants us to talk to and what He wants us to do. We see that from the beginning of Scripture all the way through. And the key to all of that is not trying to figure it all out ahead of time because we can't. The key is to begin walking faithfully in that calling, serving in that ministry, working for the Lord to make disciples, but always keeping an open mind and a receptive heart to the voice of the Holy Spirit that may well redirect your path, even when you're on a good path. Okay? You may be doing exactly what you're called and designed for, and the Holy Spirit says, now, stop that and go over here and do this. And there may be a total redirection for your life and ministry. I don't, know, I don't know if Paul ever received an explanation for why he was not to enter Asia or Bithynia, but he was obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit nonetheless. When we sold most everything we owned and moved to Alaska, we were answering a very specific calling on our lives to go there and minister in a church in Fairbanks. And we did that faithfully for three years. And it was wonderful. And out of the blue, the Holy Spirit directed us uh, to pack up and drive 5,000 miles back to South Carolina to start a church. Right? We had offers from several other churches there in Alaska, right down the road. Great offers to come and, and lead those churches. He could have left us in Alaska and gotten anyone else to come and start a church here. I don't understand always why the Holy Spirit directs us the way that He does, but it's not my job to always understand. It's my job to obey His voice. So here we are. And God is doing many great things here, and we couldn't be happier. And yet He's placed very capable, wonderful men who love Him very much to lead those other churches in Alaska. And they're men from all over the country that went all the way up there to lead those churches. Why did He choose to direct us the way that He did? He could have just moved us down the road from where we were and sent someone closer to Traveler's Rest here to start this church. So why all the big song and dance? Why move people around so much? Are you ready for the profound answer to that question? I don't know. (laughs) I wish I did. I don't know. And that's okay. 
I've talked to very many aging and elderly ministers over the years about their lives in ministry, and yet I have yet to hear even one of them say to me, yep, my life in ministry turned out just like I thought it would. Not one of them has ever said anything like that to me. Instead, what I've heard over and over again is some version of, I had no idea when I decided to follow Jesus Christ and answer that calling in my life where it would take me. I never could have imagined all that He's done in my life. The point is, allow the Holy Spirit to direct you. You don't have to have it all figured out before you can begin to answer that calling in your life. Just be faithful in what He's calling you to do and then let Him guide you along the way. You'll most certainly go places and experience things that you never imagined. But if we're following Him, we are always right where we need to be. Okay? Let's continue in our text this morning by reading the next 14 verses. We'll start on verse 11 where we stopped. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And by the way, that wasn't a, a happy crying out. She was taunting them. Just like Jesus was taunted by spirits. Right? The, first, the first people to ever recognize who Jesus actually was were evil spirits calling out to him. Right? It was a taunting. And this she kept doing for many days. Verse 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is a tale of two women. One brings great blessing and provision to Paul and his companions, and one brings great calamity and suffering. They minister the truth of Christ to both of them, and yet the outcome from each encounter was very different. Which brings us to our final point of discussion this morning, which is that when you answer the call of God in your life, you will experience both great blessing and great opposition. Okay, finding no synagogue in Philippi, Paul and his friends uh, go to the closest thing to the one in the area, a group of women who've gathered outside the city to pray. Philipp, Philippi was a, a Roman colony, which was a very privileged status for a provincial city at the time, but it lacked any significant Jewish population, and yet there were non-Jewish God-fearers there like Lydia. And Lydia was from Thyatira, which was famous for its expensive uh, purple dyes, and she is described as a seller of purple goods, which means she had some wealth. 
And so as Paul shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with these women, Lydia believes and becomes a follower of Jesus. And Paul baptizes her and her entire household, which would have included her servants as well. And so, so changed was Lydia by this experience that the church begins to gather at her home, which we see later in verse 40. So here's this really wonderful encounter with the best possible outcome. This wealthy, potentially prominent member of the community responds to the gospel. She becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, as does her family and her entire household. She convinces Paul and his companions to come stay at her house, where they were surely blessed and taken care of very well by Lydia and all of her attendants and family members. And she begins to have the church gather and meet there, using what God has given her, all of her resources, to develop the church. There's so much great blessing both spiritually and materially, that comes from carrying out God's calling in our lives. He sees to it that we're taken care of, and at times we're even blessed far beyond what we need. God is a good God, and He loves to give us good gifts. Paul and his friends were not planning on going to Philippi, and yet the result of their obedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit was not only success in the ministry, but great blessing and provision as well. And yet another really common reason that people give for not answering the call of God in their lives is how would we ever make ends meet? Pastor, explain to me how we could ever make this work. But that very question is flawed from the beginning because we often can't make it work. Sometimes we have no way to engineer a guaranteed outcome when we step out into the often unknown path that God has for us. And yet the more that we learn to rely on God, the more his life shines through ours because that life of total reliance requires a lot of faith. And you'll find that the more you walk in faith, trusting him for every need, the more he can accomplish in you. And the greater your faith will become because you'll see him not only provide for your needs time and again, but often he'll shower you with blessings beyond your imagination. There is great blessing in answering the call of God. And sometimes there's also great opposition. As Paul continues going out to the place of prayer, there's a a girl who's possessed by an evil spirit and clearly recognizes Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy as men sent by God. And she won't stop telling everyone. In fact, she's shouting it out incessantly to the point that Paul, uh, probably concerned that people will think that she's with them, since what she's saying was true, Paul decides he's had enough. And he commands the spirit to leave the girl, and it does. The problem is that she was a great source of income for those who owned her as a slave because the spirit inside of her was able to foretell the future. And so her owners were making a great profit from these abilities, and that is now gone And as Paul commands the spirit to leave her. And just as an interesting side note, throughout the book of Acts, we repeatedly see profit-making motives working against the gospel. Simon the magician in chapter 8 tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John, believing that he could profit from the same kind of work the apostles were doing. Elymas, another magician in chapter 13, opposes Paul and Barnabas because he stands to lose his lucrative position with the proconsul if he accepts the gospel message. Demetrius, a silversmith, which we'll get into in chapter 19, rallies many tradesmen against the apostles because they fear they're going to lose their very profitable business of making these little silver idols that they sell to people because the gospel is being preached. All of these examples point out to us that the gospel message and those who are hungry for money generally don't mix. And yet, isn't that exactly what we see on some of our late night television channels? Those who pervert and peddle the gospel for their own financial gain. 
They've actually made very profitable businesses out of selling false, uh, selling a false gospel, a prosperity gospel that claims biblical truth, when in fact it couldn't be anything further from it. And the point is, there's no money-making formula hidden in the gospel for us to exploit, okay, for personal financial gain. But what is really sad is that what actually is promised in the Bible to those who follow Jesus Christ is so much better than anything this world has to offer, but so many are selling themselves short of the true wealth and untold pleasures of a life lived in total abandonment and subjugation to Christ, which we see in Scripture and in our society today. Okay? Now, back to the story. That was a side note. Paul has now ruined a really nice little cottage industry, this little fortune-telling business by setting this young woman free from an evil spirit. And as a result, the slave owners come after him and Silas. After a mock trial, they have Paul and Silas stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. And let me just tell you, this was nothing like the punishment that convicted criminals receive today. We get all lathered up about terrorists being waterboarded for information that may prevent future terrorist attacks. Paul and Silas were stripped down so as to be humiliated in public. They were beaten with wooden rods, which was horrifically brutal. The magistrates in Roman cities had these attendants, and they would carry bundles of wooden rods around that were bound together, which they would not only use, of course, to punish convicted criminals with, but also just the sight of them being carried would remind uh, people, it would strike fear into the citizens and remind them of the authority that the government had to inflict this severe punishment as it saw fit. This was no fair trial. This was a mock trial. Paul and Silas were publicly shamed. They were ruthlessly beaten and then thrown into the innermost part of the prison with their feet shackled to the floor, all based on the testimony of false witnesses when all they really did was set a little slave girl free from a tormenting spirit. They were doing God's work. They were answering the call of God in their lives and they paid an awfully heavy price for it. It's hard for Western Christians to accept this idea of suffering for the sake of the gospel because we were brought up to believe in fairness and innocent until proven guilty. Uh, everyone gets a fair trial and everyone has the right to legal representation and, and we should be very grateful for all of that, by the way. Those are good things. We rally around those who fight injustice. We love a good cause. It's all very positive, but at some point we have to reconcile the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that assures us that answering that divine calling to spread the good news of Jesus and to make disciples of Christ is going to cost us something. A gospel without suffering is a false gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18, and 19. Thankfully, at least in our part of the world here, we aren't beaten and imprisoned typically for the gospel. But that does not mean that we won't experience opposition as we carry out the calling of God in our lives. Those living outside of the will of God, unbelievers, those not following Jesus Christ, are never going to be accepting of some aspects of the gospel message. That is simply a fact that the church cannot continue to sweep under the rug, although many keep trying. There are issues of sin and submission and obedience and judgment addressed in the gospel that will never be tolerated by unbelievers. 
The world outside of the body of Christ is never going to tolerate some elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet those issues are clearly addressed in that same gospel. And the church has to make a choice to speak the truth. The whole counsel of God, which is what Paul refers to in Acts 20, which is a reference to the entirety of God's redemptive plan unfolded in Scripture, even though some parts of that plan are unpopular or difficult. The church has to make a choice to teach the whole counsel of God as we carry out the calling of God, or we can choose to avoid the hard truths of that message in order to placate the public, because we're obsessed with having to be accepted by the world and our culture today. When we so desperately want the church to be embraced by our culture, when we pant over the desire to be seen as cool and with it to be perceived as modern thinkers, when we compromise elements of the gospel to slake our thirst for the approval of pop culture, we not only become ineffective in making true disciples of Jesus Christ, but we prostitute the sacrifice that He made for all of mankind by selling short the profound depth of His triumph over sin. We can't quite possibly, we could cruise through this life, we could profess faith in Christ without offending anyone, and probably remain quite comfortable in that if we choose to. And please understand, uh, you know, I'm not an angry preacher, <laughs> licking his chops to take a few shots at people outside the church. I'm not. If you know me at all, you know that I love people very much. And in fact, my heart is broken for our neighborhood here and our city and honestly all those who are not following Jesus, which is precisely why I have neither the time nor the patience for a partial gospel or a false gospel. There's simply far too much at stake and that is why it is so imperative that we answer the call of God on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ to make disciples, teaching them to observe all, all that He commanded us always saturating that message with the love of Jesus Christ, of course. A love that says, even though you oppose me in this message, I will not only keep loving you, but in fact I will give you my very life for the sake of the gospel. There's untold blessing in answering the call of God, and at times there will be opposition, okay? And the appropriate response for us when that opposition comes couldn't be summed up any better than what we see in verse 25 of our story. Let's read it together, and I'm closing. As Paul and Silas lay in the darkness, shackled to a cold and probably damp stone building, their bodies are broken and weak. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Are you kidding me? It's hard to imagine actually praising God in that situation. Pleading with Him in prayer for deliverance, yeah, I get that. But singing hymns of praise seems surreal given the circumstance. And yet the reason they were able to do that is because they weren't focused on themselves. They were focused on Jesus Christ. They were committed and determined to answer that call of God in their lives, both in abundance of blessing and in the reality and difficulty of opposition. And when we're all able to get to that place where we praise Him and serve Him and continue working for Him in both good times and in hard times, the world will sit up and take notice of the church. Because they'll see us living for something more, something bigger, something transcendent of the shallow promises of a self-focused society. God is calling, and He's looking for men and women of character, not experience or an impressive background. He's looking for those who would simply remain committed to Him, 
those committed to following him, however the spirit leaves, whether in good times or bad, those who would stay the course and finish the race. God is calling us, he's calling this church to make disciples in this neighborhood and in our city and wherever else he may lead us. He's calling us to live like Jesus Christ for something bigger. Let's become famous in our town for the love that we have for each other and those outside our church. God is calling us. Let's answer that call together, okay? Let's pray.